Good morning. My name is Brad Talley. I'm the teaching elder here at Grace Community Church. Thank you very much to the worship team. David was very ill last night and this morning. And so uh, serving at less than his best. Sarah is sleep deprived for many months now with, you know, a little new one. Jeremy was arresting bad people all night. So... uh, and Harrison's a teenager, and the rest of them, well, you know, it's just, uh, but it was wonderful, beautiful, wonderful worship this morning. I was just almost carried away with the time of worship. I love singing about the cross. What a perfect day on, on, when we're focusing on cross-centered living to unveil the new cover for the baptistry. Matt Damaris and Stephen Eisenberg and probably several others worked a great deal on this, and it's just beautiful, and it reminds us That the cross is at the center of our lives. As believers, the cross is at the center. Cross-centered, and then next week our focus is resurrection-centered living, or resurrection living. So, um, this time of year is enormously important. It is enormously meaningful to believers. Before I jump into the message, let me just... um, Mention a couple of things. Um, Discovery lunch right after the service. You've heard this two or three times already this morning. But if you are brand new to Grace, if you've been here for two or three weeks, two or three months, you were out biking this morning, decided you'd stop. We have some clothes you can change into right after the service. So we can, you can stay for our Discovery lunch. I'm just kidding about that. I'm, I don't know about those clothes those bikers wear. Um, but... Um, We would love for you, if this is your first time at Grace and you had no idea that we were going to have a lunch for those that want to get to know a little bit more about it, our home group leaders will be here, elders, a lot of the home group leaders are elders and deacons. You'll get to meet some of the leaders of the church, and we'd love for you to get plugged into one of our home groups, and you can get to know some of those leaders. And then in a couple of weeks, we're beginning our Grace Connection class a Sunday after Easter. Uh, at 9 o'clock in the back, we will provide child care. We just need to know if you're coming. There's a sign-up sheet out there. So it's a four-week class that will tell you all about uh, who we are at Grace. Elder rule, that's kind of new to a lot of people. That's our church government structure here. And so we'd love for you to join us for that. And it is a part of the membership process. doesn't necessarily indicate that you're going to be a member if you come. It's not necessarily what you're saying but if you ever want to be a member here that is part of the process and then one last announcement good friday this week uh very special service that is at a very special time which is uh 6 30 is that right 6 30 okay 6 30 allison and i will be out of town this is the first good friday service that we've had here that we have missed we're going to be uh, visiting our son John up in New York City. So um, we'll make sure to leave all the picante sauce in the city. Just leave it right there. Well, if you've uh, <clears throat> kept track of news at all these last uh, several weeks, this last month, then you know, local news that is, then you know about a guy named Joseph Mitchell who was on trial for suffocating his son. He did not for killing his son. He he didn't deny suffocating his son, but he said in his defense that he was sleepwalking. Um, 
he was found innocent of first-degree murder. And after the trial, one of the jurors uh, spoke anonymously to a reporter and said, you know, we really wanted to at least charge this man or convict this man of manslaughter, but we were unable to. The judge said it has to be first, second-degree murder or an acquittal. Uh, The anonymous juror said that they came very close to a hung jury. You ever followed a case in which you and everybody else, and I, listen, I know you're going to automatically make the connection. Everyone seems to think this man is guilty and should be. I'm not making that judgment. I wasn't in court, so I don't know all the facts. But you followed cases where you and everybody else thinks this guy is guilty. This woman drove that van into the water with her kid. This person is has committed a heinous crime and needs to go and then some slick lawyer gets him or her off how do you feel about that i mean i I bet you were frustrated with a lawyer and i bet you said how in good conscience could you represent such scum of the earth and help that person avoid justice i suppose if the person on trial were in your family you'd feel differently. Not, not differently about the crime, but you'd feel differently about how you want the case to go and how you want the verdict to be and, and all of that. I mean, what if you were the person on trial? Well, I would never do such a thing. Well, I don't think you would. Probably wouldn't. But what if you were on trial and you were being totally, you were being accused of a heinous crime and, and you, you just wanted to cry out, I'm innocent. I did not do this. Or worse yet, what if you had done it? And you say, well, yes, I did it, but you don't understand the reasons. I'm not a bad person. I am not a bad person. And the world is hoping against hope that a sleazeball lawyer or a sleazeball like you doesn't escape justice because of a slick lawyer. Well, let's move to another court scene. And one in which every single one of us will participate. How do you think you'll do when you stand before the judge of all the earth? Before God in heaven. And you are required to give an account of your life here on earth. But you don't really ever get a chance to defend yourself. Because it's just right there on the screen. Everything you've ever done. Everything you've ever thought. How will you do at that trial? Well, I've been a pretty good person. I think I'll do okay. I've never killed anybody. But Jesus says that if you hate someone, you just hate someone in your heart, you're guilty of murder. And that's going to be displayed. You know, what you would have done if you had been able to and get away with it in that moment of passion, that moment of anger. Furthermore, the reality awaits that awaits you when you stand before a righteous and holy God is that anyone who has broken the law in one single point is guilty of the whole thing. You ever told a lie? Well, yeah, white lie. You told some of those this week, haven't you? In fact, quite a few. You're laughing because it's your neighbor that did it, and you know he's busted. Furthermore, 
if you are found to be not in good standing with God, then you are going to be assigned to be in league with Satan. And his fate awaits you. Unless you have the best lawyer in the universe. And this lawyer must not only speak for you or represent you. He will have to assume the punishment that is deservedly yours. He's going to have to take it upon himself. He's going to have to say, well, judge, my client is guilty. But I'm going to take his place. Well, there's only one such lawyer in all the universe. And you know his name. One advocate. The only one, his name is Jesus. Today on this Palm Sunday, we're going to think about the one who would pay such a steep price. Our Savior Jesus did not assume the role that everyone expected the Messiah to fill. Jesus just does not look like the Messiah, they said, especially at the end, especially (coughs) on that Friday of Holy Week. But the spectacular deliverance that Jesus as Messiah brought was for anyone from any nation, not just for the Jews, but anyone who would believe that he died for sin. Jesus' sacrificial death was foretold long before he came to the earth. This morning we're going to read Isaiah 53, which really begins in Isaiah 52, 12. Sometimes the chapter divisions are unfortunate. They're not inspired. That came much, 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 much later. And so we're going to be reading from Isaiah 52, verse 13, through Isaiah 53, 12. Um, We'll read the text and pray and then take time to reflect on our sin and his salvation, secured in the most astonishing way. Scott led us into a very reflective time. Scott Colbert during our prayer time. As we thought about what it means to live in light of the cross. Or live in the power of the cross. But also in the death of the cross. This morning we're going to see what that cross meant for Jesus. It's our custom to stand as the scripture is read. So if you would please stand. And we'll begin reading in Isaiah <coughs> 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see. And that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty. 
that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked. And with a rich man in his death, Joseph of Arimathea, that we were talking about last week. Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let's pray. Well, Father, as we... Stand at the foot of the cross, considering the sacrifice that your dear son Jesus, whom you loved with a perfect love, any love that you have is a perfect love, but whom you sent to the cross to be crushed under your hand out of your love for us, as we stand before that cross, Lord, open our eyes to our own sin and to the great price that was paid for us. Jesus, help us to see you. And be grateful and even rejoice. Amen.
Thank you and be seated. <clears throat> Almost all of us fashion a God to our own liking. When we think about God, we think about God this way or that way, and it's, and it's a God that we have fashioned. Even those of us who are tied to Scripture, we, we find ourselves thinking about God in ways that we want to, but then on the other hand, some of you are like me, and guilt can be your constant companion. And, and, and when you think about God from from a perspective of one who is guilty, it can be terrifying for a while. Then you become numb to that. That's why guilt just doesn't work. Serving the Lord that way doesn't work. If it were up to you, most likely you would prefer a God, some of you would prefer a God strictly of love and others of you because of the way you're natured, want a God of justice or because of something that's happened to you, you want a God of justice. But if you'll think about this beyond a surface level, you don't want a God who is either one or the other. You don't want a God who tends so far in one direction that the other is ignored. But ultimately, it's not up to us as to what kind of God we get. God is who He is. Some people say, well, you know, I can understand this God of love. I mean, I, I, I get a God of love, but don't talk to me about all this sin and hell and condemnation. On the other hand, there are people who say, oh, yeah, there's a God of justice, and you're going to get yours one day. The way things are now, not going to always be that way. And that's true. But we're looking at God in only one way or another. Um, love and justice, though, coexist perfectly in God. Not like the bumper stickers, coexist. Or else, it may as well say. You know, it doesn't, but it may as well say. Think about it. I mean, you don't want to love a God who is so loving that he just tolerates evil. Nobody wants that, right? At the same time, you desperately need a God of love who does not judge you as you deserve. You don't want this God to be all justice because it's not going to turn out well for you if that's who he is. The way that God can be both just and loving to the point of justifying the ungodly is astonishing. God's love is expressed through his servant, but not in the way anyone expected. Behold, my servant shall act wisely, and he shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see. And that which they have not heard they understand. The servant here is often represented uh, or often represents Israel in the book of Isaiah. But there is no way that this can be the Jewish nation that, 
that, that Isaiah is referring to, that God through Isaiah's pen is referring. It, it has to be an individual, the Messiah, who is high and lifted up to the point of being exalted. So this can't be just a man. This has to be God. Anyone who is spoken of in that language is God, high, exalted, lifted up. But God's servant, who will one day put all to rights, was beaten and marred so badly that he could not be recognized as a human being. The Roman soldiers didn't say to one another, who is, who is that? They, they asked, is that human? I don't even know how there's breath coming out of that body. No wonder the kings of the nation shut their mouths. Nobody expected this. This was not the way God's deliverer was going to go about his business. The all-powerful God of the universe humiliated like this. What is he doing? He's purifying the nations, sprinkling them with his blood. As we see over. Over and over in Scripture. Making atonement. That's what he's doing. 53.1 Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty. We should look at him and no beauty that we should despise him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Who would have expected that when the Lord bared his arm. That it would look like this. This is what delivering your people looks like. Verse 2 is almost certainly not addressing whether or not Jesus was a handsome man or a you know, kind of a, a not-so-handsome guy. This is talking about Jesus on the cross. When people turned their faces away from him, it, it was when he delivered his people, beaten beyond recognition and mocked as the utterly impotent Messiah. If you have believed, though, the arm of the Lord has been revealed to you, and you have believed the report. If God doesn't reveal himself to you, you're going to never understand Jesus. If he doesn't reveal himself to you, it's not going to make sense. You're not going to figure this out on your own. You will instead go through life hoping that justice will one day be done. Justice that is measured by scales of your own making, that is. It's stunning, really, to consider that Jesus was despised, considered to be worthless and unworthy of attention. He was rejected by the Jewish authorities. 
He was a, rejected by the Roman government and who knows, maybe even some of those who had been healed by Jesus, who had, who had cried out on this day, this Palm Sunday, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Maybe they were by Friday crying out, crucify him, crucify him. Having been swayed by the leaders, the religious leaders and the emotion of the moment. Yeah, maybe I got it wrong about him. In fact, even though there were many who were heartbroken on this day. Look, let's just admit it. We in abstentia were adding our voices to the cries of rejection. Our rejection of Jesus, though, was nothing compared to the Father's rejection of His own Son. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him, esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. You know what it's like, don't you, when you're badly misunderstood and you cannot correct the misperception that people have no matter what. There are no words that will correct it. No words that will allow people to say, oh, I get it now. It makes sense to me. You can't say anything because people's minds are made up. Imagine Jesus bearing the sins of the ones he had created. These were people that he had made in his own image. They were mocking him and beating him. And there was so much here, more here though, than Jesus' enemies getting the best of him. For all the world, that's what it looked like. If you had been one of the disciples, that's exactly what you would have thought. How can uh, I got nothing? Who, who can say? God himself struck Jesus. It wasn't just the enemies of Jesus nailing him to the cross. God himself, the Father, struck his son. But it must be noted that Jesus offered himself to the Father's blows, which were directed toward your sin. Jesus got in the way of the Father's blows. How sad are you today? Life is hard, isn't it? Just before I walked up here talking with one of you about the sad, sad week that it's been with friends. Jesus was a man of sorrows. And while it's true that he was sorrowful about the effect of sin on life, these sorrows that he bore were your sorrows and they were mine. They were our griefs. The insults of those who were insulting you have fallen on me. Jesus took all the bad stuff upon himself. 
He took the sorrow of your sin, the sorrow of the sin of those who have sinned against you. He took it to the cross with him. It's as if Isaiah brings us right to the foot of of the cross. Mocking the man who is dying. But when God opens our eyes, we realize it is we who should be suffering God's wrath. Not the spotless lamb of God. The spotless son of God. Yet here is Jesus being pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Is there a more agonizing description of the burden of Jesus' cross than to hear that he was crushed for our iniquities? The slow, torturous grinding of the Father's just and righteous wrath against sin that equaled an eternity of hell for me was being poured out on Jesus instead. Justice required that my sin be judged. It was love that caused Jesus to allow himself to die for for me and it was the Father's love for me that sent him there. You want to think about the Father's anger towards sin and Jesus' love and saying, okay, we'll do it to me. No. The New Testament probably talks more about the love of God, the love of the Father in sending His Son than it does about Jesus' great love for us. That's not to say one is more powerful than the other. I'm just saying God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Whoever believed in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And as Jesus was crushed, we were healed. God's wrath toward our sin was exhausted on Jesus, and peace between God and man became possible. It's not that God had to save us from ourselves. God had to save us from himself. That's not like you and me needing to control our temper. That's not like the two of us needing to control our temper. God is perfect and we had rejected him in our sin. When you share your testimony, you you may say something like, "I, I, I was seeking for God, but you weren't. He drew you to himself. Even as you were determined to go your own way. You know, people think that, look, my way looks so much like your way. I I, got to tell you, I guess I'm just old. I've never felt like this in my life, but I'm not real excited about driving north of Richmond on 95. We're driving, we're, you know, making it a road trip so to speak and and there's not much difference in the way the interstate going this way and the interstate going this way look but if you get on the wrong ramp you're in a world of trouble and there are a lot of people who 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 look and say look what do you mean I've gone astray look at look at this road I'm traveling you know you might want to say look up because 
at the end, it's not going to be pretty. The Lord drew you to himself even as you were determined to go your own way. We have all gone astray from birth. And only as the love of God is revealed to us in Scripture do we believe that the chastisement that should have been ours was put on Jesus. And the shards of flesh that the Roman soldiers ripped from his body were exposed for our healing. Only when we believe will we find peace. I'm not sure that there's any place in the New Testament that so graphically illustrates the heavy cost of the great exchange, my sin, for Jesus' righteousness. We'd have to acknowledge, though, that Isaiah 53 makes no sense apart from the New Testament. Makes perfect sense in light of it, but none without it. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us exactly what was happening on the cross. For our sake, he made him to be sin. God the Father made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, even though he was sinless, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The theological term is imputation. It means to charge to someone's account. God charged my sin to Jesus' account and Jesus' righteousness to my account. If you're in a car accident, someone has got to be accountable for the damage. Every one of us <laughs> have gotten on that wrong interstate. And unless Jesus steps in and takes the damage, we're in trouble. But he did. He assumed the penalty. So as you stand at the foot of cross... At the foot of the cross. Look at Jesus. It'd be a good thing to do this week. Just to take your place at the foot of the cross. Just stay there. Maybe read this text again. And just, just absorb what Jesus did for you. That's the motivation. For living the way that he's called us to live. That's why, why it's called cross-centered living. No longer mock the powerless revolutionary, but rather believe that Jesus died for you. And he died for this sin that you can't seem to conquer in your life. And he died for this attitude that you have about someone who has done you so wrong. Believe that God the Father judged Jesus for your sin. And believe that God makes you righteous you, as you acknowledge your sin and trust what Jesus did for you. Jesus died willingly, but in order for him to be an acceptable substitute for us, it was necessary that he die innocently as well. Look at verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Think about somebody that's done you wrong. Here's Jesus. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Now look. Don't get confused. Jesus did battle. He had much debate with the Pharisees. None of it was sinful. None of it. Jesus was perfect. And if he's not innocent, then none of this really matters. But all of this 
talk is about the cross and it's so appropriate. Jesus argued for truth and you should do it as well. Do it gently, Paul says, but then Paul turns right around and gives it very straight to. But cross-centered living tells us that when people abuse us, we die to ourselves. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. As I was preparing for this, I'm going to read a quote from Ray Ortland Jr. Just to, at, at the end of the message. It's in the, the home group leaders. You'll appreciate that, this. It's in the Preaching the Word series. The Kent Hughes usually writes those commentaries. Ray Ortland Jr., wrote this one and a lot of the things that I've said today are thoughts of his. Um, and he was saying, why is it that we just have to be right? Why do we have to be right all the time? <coughs> I'm like, shut your mouth, Ray! <laughs> By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? Jesus' execution was a miscarriage of justice, but it was a choice that Jesus freely made. He was not overpowered. He went willingly. Quit wasting your time worrying about whether this was a just execution or not. It was not. Bill O'Reilly or anybody else, who cares? He did it because it had to be done if we were going to have any hope. Verse 9. They made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Although we had done no violence yet, and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. It is amazing, is it not, that the Jewish uh, religious leaders of, of the Jewish nation could not, they could read Isaiah 53 in the light of everything that unfolded before them and miss it. They just couldn't make the connection. I, it really shouldn't be surprising. How many people do you know who were some of the finest? moral people in the world but they just almost get angry when you say that your only hope is to believe that Jesus died in your place they call it stuff like celestial child abuse how could God the father do this to his son really this is love yes it was love it was necessary and once again if God doesn't open our eyes we'll never see the entire crucifixion event, along with the resurrection, was God's doing. And we are the Lord's offspring. He did it that we might live. And 
verse 10, we see why Jesus was crushed so that we could live. This is the mystery of the cross. Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous imputation. He shall bear their iniquities. This great exchange. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death. And was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many. And makes intercession for the transgressors. That just makes no sense at all. I mean, he bore the sin of many. And then he's... He's risen from the, he is raised from the dead, and he says, Oh, Father, don't hold this sin to his charge. He belongs to me. God is satisfied with Jesus' sacrifice. His resurrection is proof that God accepted his offering for our sin. And he not only bore my sin, but he stands before the Lord today. Arguing my case to God. And why wouldn't he? I'm so good. I'm so righteous. No. No. That's not what verse 12 says. He bore the sin of many. And makes intercession. At this very moment. For the transgressors. Ray Ortland Jr. Who I've referenced already. Has this to say about Isaiah 53. Actually, I pulled this from several different places in his commentary. Everybody knows that God punishes bad people and he rewards good people. It's his job, isn't it? But the gospel disagrees. The gospel says that God justifies the ungodly. I think I had it in my notes recently and I'm not sure that I actually said it. People say, no, wait a minute. I have done so much for this community and you're going to tell me that I'm headed for hell when this drunkard, this man who beat his wife and children gets saved and he's going to heaven? It, it makes no sense. The Christian faith is thoroughly miraculous and some people choke on that. The resurrection probably is what he's referring to. But they often miss the most outrageous miracle right at the center of the gospel. Romans 4, 5. God justifies the ungodly. That upsets the whole moral order of the universe. It does, doesn't it? Because it, how, does, how does it work that really good people are not connected with God and really bad people who believe that Jesus died for them are. It upsets the whole moral order of the universe. Finger pointing is one of our favorite devices for self-justification. There's a reason we shift the blame from ourselves to others. Our guilt is intolerable. It's unbearable. So that's why, right? That's why we justify what we do. That's why it's somebody else's fault. That's why. But see, none of that works when you stand before God at the end. 
but there is a redemptive release. It's the miracle and scandal that God justifies the ungodly. Let's pray. Lord, um, we spend most of our lives trying to convince ourselves that we're really not that bad. <clears throat> when we ought to spend our lives thanking you that even though we are that bad, that you made a remedy for our sin. And Lord, this cross-centered Living, this living as Jesus died requires, of course, dying to ourselves. It's so difficult. But Father, the point of this passage is not to make all kinds of points about how horrible people that don't believe in Jesus are, but it's to, it's like Ravi said, turn our eyes to the Lord and remove the obstacles. May we participate in that by dying to ourselves and Lord on this last Sunday of the month when we give out of the bountiful blessings that you have poured out on us to help those who are in need may our hearts give with rejoicing sharing the love of God the love of Jesus in the ways that reflect the cross of Christ it's in Jesus name we pray Amen we heard this morning about our sin and the suffering of the Christ foretold. Easter is a perfect time that we celebrate the fulfillment of the Christ. And hear the words from Hebrews. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This week, as we remember Christ, as you are being tempted, take comfort. Seek the merciful and faithful high priest that his suffering is not only foretold, not just fulfilled, but is finished for you. Go in peace.